really enjoy this preaching through a, a book of the Bible verse by verse because the scripture dictates what gets preached next. Um, obviously, you still want to be submissive to the Holy Spirit if, if there's something that needs to be addressed or, or spoken about, preached about. But this way, you know, if I tell you we're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark and something comes up in the Gospel of Mark and you feel convicted about it, you can't blame the pastor, right? It's already there. So uh, kind of grateful for that. Uh, again, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. It reads, And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples were asking him about the parable. And he said to them, are you lacking understanding in this way as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and goes to the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Titled this message today, Defiled Inside Out. If you remember from the text that preceded this, if you uh, were able to listen to last week's message or if you're here, you know that the Pharisees had challenged Jesus. They'd come against him. They were looking for weaknesses, looking for problems, things to nitpick at in his ministry. They'd even called in reinforcements from Jerusalem. They'd asked the scribes to come down and, and back them up. And they, they happened to notice that Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands and we learn that that's not really washing of their hands, just rinsing, the, rinsing them off with water before they would eat. It, they were about the ceremony of the, of, the, of the meal, not really about cleanliness. And they got pretty upset about that. And Jesus called them out. Jesus said, you're so worried about cleansing the outside, but you don't even dare cleanse the inside of your own lives. And then he continues this today in his discussion with not just the disciples, not just the Pharisees, but an entire crowd. He tells them, and if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down, sin works its way from the inside out. True defilement, the sinful nature, it works its way out of a person's life from the inside. It's already there. It's already buried inside of them. And so if we're to combat that, if we're to come against that, Well, the text today basically tells us we have to face our sin. We have to understand our sin if Christ is ever to be the cure for our sin. Three different times in our text this morning, Jesus explains himself. He wants to be very clear about what he's saying. He's very clear about this message. He especially wants the 12 disciples to understand this because he knows they're going to face adversity from it as well. Sin does not come from outside of a person. It is already buried deep within their core. 
People say, but I thought, I thought everybody was just naturally good. Well, if that's what you believe, I'd suggest you turn off Disney Plus and go outside of your house and meet actual people. Actual people are rude. Actual people are kind of gross. They can be mean. They can be ugly inside and out, believe it or not. And that's, the gospel tells us this. The truth of Jesus dying for our sins. Well, why would he do that? Because we all have sinned, and we'll unpack that as we go today. But that sounds strange, even sacrilegious to some people of this modern generation because they've been told they're good people. You're, you're great just the way you are, right? Be true to yourselves. Love yourself. That's a virtue. Your heart is always right. You should listen to your heart. And nothing is more important than your own personal happiness. That is a lie. All of it. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not the good news that we're to believe. People are wicked. People are evil. You might say, well, what do you base that on, pastor? Human history, to begin with. I once heard a pastor say, he was giving a great illustration. He talked about how he had this brand new, nice, shiny watch, and his infant son was sitting on his lap, and his son would just coo and awe and, and wanted to grab the watch. And every time he'd pull away the watch, his son would begin to scream and cry and then kick and even punch to get that watch back. And the pastor said, if you don't believe people are naturally evil, give that young boy the strength of an 18-year-old man, and he would kill me to get that watch. That's the sinful nature on display within a person. People have wickedness. They have rebellion. They have sin within their hearts. It comes from the inside out, not the other way around. It is a consequence of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And that is why we need a Savior. That is why Christ died. So Jesus clarifies this three separate times, three different ways within our text. Jesus makes one thing very clear. It is not what a person puts into their body as a meal. It's not what they eat that makes them unclean. It's the fruit that comes out of their body. It's what they do with their body. That sin works its way from the inside out. That's where the defilement comes from. And again, we must face our sin if we are to understand our sin. And we must understand our sin if Christ is to cure us of our sin. To begin with, like I said, we face it. In Mark seven fourteen, he says, And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Notice here, Jesus is not just talking at this point to the Pharisees and the scribes. Everyone within the sound of his voice, gather to me, he says. I want to explain this. Again, if you recall, Jesus had had this sparring match with the Pharisees, but now he wants everyone in close. He wants them to hear this. He wants to make sure they know the truth. If you remember, the Pharisees were using oral traditions to build fences around the law, and really what they were doing was building cages around the people, little boxes. And Jesus comes in and he just kicks the door down to those cages. And here he turns to the whole crowd and he says, everybody listen up, I'm not done kicking cages in. He's about to teach. If you remember, this is one of the reasons Mark says Jesus came. When the crowds wanted a healer, they couldn't find him. The disciples went looking for him. And in Mark 1.38, he said to them, Let's go elsewhere to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Mark consistently 
has shown us the two reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil and to teach. And within the context of this passage this morning, he does both things. You see, whether they realize it or not, the Pharisees were serving someone else. Someone else entirely. They convinced themselves by their legalism they were serving the Lord. But in fact, they were serving themselves. They were serving tradition. And ultimately, they were serving Satan. They were serving the devil. Because the whole purpose, if you remember from last week, they are building their case to discredit Christ and ultimately to kill him. And so in John's Gospel... He exposes who they're truly serving. He says, because they're building up this case, they are children of the devil. He says, you are, this is John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus has exposed this of the Pharisees. And so in a sense, what he's saying at this point is, okay, scribes, Pharisees, we're done with you. We're going to move on. We're going to talk to everybody else now, okay? I want everyone to make sure they understand. Listen to me on this. Jesus wants the people to know the truth of their nature, not the traditions that help them deny it. Jesus wants the people to know the reality of their sin, not the ritual for hiding it. Jesus wants the people to know the true cleansing of their heart, not conformity to a culture. So he says to the crowd, he stands there and he says, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Now this is the first time Jesus says this, but it won't be the last. Nothing that is outside the man defiles him. Even if it goes into him, what comes out of the man is what's defiled. Is what makes him defiled, excuse me. The word defiled, by the way, appears five times in our text. It appears 14 times total within the New Testament. Five times here, five times in the parallel passage of Mark 15, three times in the book of Acts, and once in the book of Hebrews. It's the Greek word koinao, and it means to profane, to make impure, to make dirty or polluted. This is the opposite of what the law has taught these people. God had declared that exposure to certain things rendered a person ceremonially unclean. It was a condition that could only be remedied by time and by washing and by ritual before a person could interact with the rest of the community or enter into the temple for for sacrifice and worship. The law determined that some behaviors even required specific rituals before someone's status would be, uh, be redeemed or, or made pure because they had become unclean. Certain diseases, things they couldn't help, certain diseases, certain bodily discharges, things people could help, they all had the potential to make someone unclean. And the Pharisees had weaponized this against the common man. They had taken this law and used it against the people, used it to manipulate them, to enslave them. In a sense, like we saw last week, the people could not even eat their dinner without performing a ritual if they wanted the approval of the Pharisees. What Jesus is saying here, what we have to understand right here, 
is Jesus is saying something that flies in the face of a culture. It flies in the face of tradition. It flies to the Jew, to the Hebrew who hears this. It may even be flying in the face of God's word. One author, uh, Dr. Vincent Taylor, says, In laying down the principle that uncleanness comes from within, not from without, Jesus' pronouncement stated a truth uncommon in contemporary Judaism, which was destined to free Christianity from the bondage of legalism. William Barclay said that this passage is possibly the most revolutionary passage in all of Scripture. One of the most revolutionary things Christ could have possibly said. This is a radical concept in his day. It does not fit into the legalism of the Pharisees that they had insisted upon the people. Now, it should be said, we have to understand this, that prior to the exile, prior to the Jews being carried off to Babylon in 586 B.C., they understood that just because a person was unclean, it didn't necessarily mean they were sinful or immoral. They certainly would not have elevated themselves above someone else if they were clean and the other person was not, because the old saying, there but for the grace of God go I. They easily could have become ceremonially unclean. But the confusion begins during the time of the exile. If you remember last week's, they they began to make the fences and the boxes around the law after the exile. So this tracks, this, this makes sense. And part of the issue, it's believed, comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel, if you recall, he was in King Nebuchadnezzar's court, and he decides in Daniel 1.8, Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with wine, which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel was concerned with eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And that's a horrible thought to a Jewish man. Because why is he in exile? Because of idolatry. So in in a sense, he's saying, don't make me go back to the thing that brought me here. The law of Moses, though, in order to to establish their identity, they cling to it. They say, no, I'm a Jew. I'm going to cling on to this law. I I have to do what it says. They're, They're not just showing their identity as, as, a, as a religious person, but as their, own, as their own identity as a Hebrew man. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this loyalty to the law becomes the root of this loyalty, not only to their God, but to their country. If you remember last week, the Jews of the time, of, of Jesus' time, had the mindset that if we just follow the law perfectly, Christ will come along, and he, or not Christ, sorry, God will come along, and he will free us from Roman oppression. He will help us throw off the bonds of tyranny. Their idea was that if we could be like Daniel, we can get what Daniel got. God will rise up, and, and he will overthrow Rome if we are just good little soldiers who follow all the rules. But then Christ comes in. The actual Messiah, God in flesh, comes by and he says, you guys can eat whatever you want. That's not the problem. Your heart is the problem. But then this becomes a problem for the Jewish mindset. The idea of of things from outside the body tainting their very core was so ingrained in the Jewish mindset that even though he's standing right there, right beside Jesus when he says this, even though he is one of the the chief disciples, Peter, 
Years later, in Acts chapter 10, he's going to have this vision of all these unclean foods. And God's going to say, go, kill it, and eat it. And what's Peter's response? He says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything defiled and unclean. I love God's response. Peter says, no way, God, I'm, I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't do that. And God says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider defiled. What God has cleaned, don't call it unclean. The rules cannot save you, but he can. Then we come to verse 16. Now, this may not be in your Bible. And it's ironic that that my friend and one of my favorite preachers in all the world is in this sanctuary with us today. My best friend, Jason Fisher. Uh, We recently got into a discussion about uh, these little verses like this. This may not be in your Bible. It is truly one of those passages that it appears a scribe had wrote verse 16 in the margins of of a scroll, and it somehow became absorbed into later manuscripts. Uh, Verse 16 says, And if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Most translations don't include that. The LSB translation does. That's why I'm preaching out of it this morning. Jesus has said this other times, though, and, and even if this is the case, maybe he didn't say it here, it still is applicable. That if you are going to hear this, Jesus is saying, if you hear this, act on it. And like I said, it's still applicable whether whether it should be included in the text or not. If you're listening, if you're paying attention, do something with the information. Face the ugly truth of your sin. Your sin is not someone else's fault. It's not because you grew up in a rough home or got bullied at school. That is a child's excuse. Jesus makes this clear. Sin is our very nature. We must face that fact if we are to become mature in Christ. Remember last week I said we are called to be mature in Christ. We're to present ourselves as one mature. Yes, we should be childlike in our faith, but not childlike in our actions. Not childlike in our rationalization of our sin. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We must face our own individual sins, acknowledge that they are ours, they are our sins, and stop giving in to the desires that we have for more. Stop blaming others for what we do to ourselves. When you're ready to accept that, that it is the reality of your own sinful nature, that it comes from within our own hearts, then and only then can we understand it and begin to have Christ cure it. My struggle with my sins are futile without the strength that is offered to me through the cross of Christ. That's true for any of us. We we must face that to keep the sin from rotting us from the inside out. And so we move to understand our sin. Verse 17, And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples were asking him about the parable. Notice the crowd doesn't leave Jesus. Jesus leaves the crowd. He wants to get away. The Pharisees are probably still standing there with their mouths wide open, trying to stutter and stammer some kind of reply. He's just accused them, and they've not denied anything that he's said of them, by the way. And so they're standing there with their their jaws on the floor going, did he just say what I think he said? And Jesus has moved on. He's on his way home. Now, it's possibly it's his house. Possibly it's Peter's house. He might be... Staying with Peter and his family, we're never really told. But this confirms to the reader that Jesus is back in Capernaum. 
He's home. He's at his home base, his territory. And his disciples have followed after him, and they're saying, Jesus, what just happened here? But Mark calls this, this is, this is interesting, Mark calls this a parable. But it's not a parable in the sense we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark. It's not some kind of story. More or less, it's just Jesus speaking in metaphor for the sake of comparison. Sin does not enter your body through what you touch or what you eat, but it comes from out of your very being. So why does Mark call it a parable? Well, if you remember one thing, parables are often spoken in judgment of those who refuse to understand them or those who don't understand them or don't. Yeah, I said that already. (laughs) Matthew gives us some explanation, perhaps, because he adds this little interaction story. The disciples ask Jesus, they come to Jesus and they say, you know what you just did? You really made those Pharisees mad. I think you hurt their feelings. Jesus, one of the scribes was crying. You really, you cut them, man. Words hurt. You should be nice. This isn't very Jesus of you, Jesus. Do they say that? No, they say, you know you offended them, right? And that's it. I like Jesus' answer. In fact, I love Jesus' answer. He says in Matthew 15, 14, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So this is, This is the Jeff Williams translation, so bear with me, okay? I'm not adding or taking away here. But basically, this is what would have happened if this were a modern context. Jesus, you really hurt those guys' feelings. So? (laughs) What? They're going to get what's coming to them. Don't worry about those guys. But Jesus, they're really mad. Meh. Okay. What else you got? And then Matthew says, Peter asks Jesus to explain it to them. And to be clear, the disciples, they don't understand it, but it's not because they're under judgment or they're a bunch of dummies or they, they're not uh, willfully ignorant here. They just don't know. They, they have just witnessed a huge culture shift right before their eyes. Jesus seems to be making the law, specifically the dietary law, null and void. Now to the, to the first century Jewish man or woman, the dietary law and the mosaic, or sorry, the moral law were one and the same. They were intertwined. So their thought must be, surely, surely if this man is the Messiah, he would not just come in and void the law, would he? Well, he doesn't void the law. He fulfills the law. He explains its true purposes. This teaching is very difficult for the Hebrew mind to wrap itself around. Remember, like I said, Peter is going to be so ingrained with the idea of what he can and cannot eat that years later he's going to have a hard time with this. Even to the point the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, he says he had to confront Peter over this very thing. Their minds are reeling. They are struggling to receive this. And we can understand that. The book of Leviticus, if you've ever tried to read through it, it's full of lists of what you can do and what you can't do and what you can eat and what you can't eat. And if you do eat those things, you are unclean. You're defiled. It's deeply embedded within their minds as well as their culture. And now it's like Jesus came in and said, just forget all that stuff. And that may prompt us in the year 2022 to ask questions like, well, then why have the law at all? Why have all those things? Why did God institute the Mosaic Law if he knew the Jewish people would ultimately, would ultimately be taking it into legalism? If Jesus is just going to come along and tear it all down, why wasn't he just there to begin with? 
Well, the law was given as a concrete reminder, not of man's holiness, but God's holiness. It's not some shield or mask for an evil heart. It's not something you hide behind when it comes to God. That's something the prophets, by the way, talk about repeatedly. Like in Amos 5, 21 through 27, it says, I don't, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your, your call to a solemn assembly. Or when Hosea says, for I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So why does God give them these laws and rules and symbols and things then if he doesn't even delight in that? Because God delights in the heart. And the Hebrew people needed at that point, they needed symbols, they needed types, they needed representations of a spiritual reality. They needed ceremonies, rituals, prescriptions, to represent the fact that God wanted a heart cleansing within his people. Circumcision is a great example of this, and and I won't go into all that because we do have kids present with us, but it had its purpose. Historically, by the way, if you ever want to look it up, Jewish women had the lowest rates of cervical cancer among any other historical group of people, and that's attributed to the circumcision in their husbands. But by the, ta- by the time Paul gets around to writing to the Galatians, he's pleading with them, you don't have to keep doing that. He says, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit of you, to you. Why? Because Christ, who is greater than the prophets, greater than Moses, has come and he's addressed our hearts. We no longer need the symbolism. We don't need the ritual. We don't need the ceremony. He's brought the good news of the kingdom of God. And when the destination is reached, you don't need the signpost. The law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 8.5 that the law is a shadow of the heavenly things. They're meant to point us to the Messiah, not be a substitution for the Messiah. The writer goes on in Hebrews 8.13 when he said a new covenant, he's talking about Christ, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. But the disciples are struggling with this. They have a hard time with this. And we can't be too hard on them for that because all throughout their history, their culture just got flipped upside down. So Jesus begins to spell it out for them. He said to them, this is verse 18. Are you lacking understanding in this way as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? The Pharisees had this law and all their boundaries around it so they could feel close to God. But the disciples in their hearts wanted to be close to God. And so Jesus understands this. And even though he seems like he's rebuking them, when he asks them this rhetorical question, I, I have to believe he's doing this very tenderly, very lovingly. He's, oh, you're, you're still struggling with this. Okay, uh, let me break this down for you. It's not what you eat. It's not what you touch that makes you sinful. It's what you do. It's how you talk. It's what, how you think. It's the actions that you make as your life moves forward that makes you defiled. I like how Chuck Swindoll says it. To touch a dead carcass was one matter. To commit murder was another. Deeds done from a corrupt heart are what makes a person unrighteous, not what one eats, drinks, or touches. You see, for the Pharisees, pride fueled their position. But for the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, teach me more. I said this last week, but we have to be careful not to become Pharisees ourselves in our judgment of the Pharisees. 
You see, pride comes to church and it says, I know all of this already. But the heart of a disciple is, what else can I get? What else can I learn? What does the, what does the word of God have for me today? That's what the disciples are doing. Jesus, teach us. We're having a hard time with this. We don't understand this. So Jesus knows they're going to face the sin within them, and they're going to have to understand where its roots are, where it's coming from. Not just the disciples, but everyone who will hear the message of the disciples. Romans 3.23 makes it abundantly clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all born with sin within us. Oh, but I'm a good person. No, you're not. Have you ever lied? Well, that makes you a liar. You ever steal anything in your entire life? Nope. You never stole a pizza, a slice of pizza off your sister's plate? Okay, yeah, I guess. Well, then you're a thief. You ever hated someone in your heart? You ever got so mad at somebody you physically wanted to assault them? The Bible tells us you're a murderer. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Men, women, you ever experienced lust in your life? According to Scripture, you're an adulterer. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, I'm a good person, but you lie, you steal, commit murder, you, you cheat on your spouse. You don't sound like a good person to me. We all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. This doesn't come from the food you eat. And it doesn't come from the way someone else treated you. It comes from your own sinful nature, and it rises up within each of us. We cannot blame it on food. Verse 19, he goes on. Jesus says, Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and goes to the sewer. Thus he declared all foods clean. Your body gets rid of food. Yes, there are days I wish my body got rid of more faster. But Jesus is not making a biological or a metabolic point. He's making a spiritual one. Mark had something specific. He wants the Gentile reader, he wants us to understand those, those little words in parentheses. Thus he declared all foods clean. Mark has been very careful to do this throughout his gospel, by the way. He does so here to make sure that we understand, that all Christians understand, we are not bound by the old dietary restrictions of the Jewish law. In Christ, the Mosaic law no longer applies as a rule of life to to regulate a society like it had been for the nation of Israel. The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans 10. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Elsewhere, Paul will will tell the Galatians, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, I am telling you that as individuals, we must understand this concept. Your sin has nothing to do with anyone else but yourself. I'm going to use the word you here for just a second, but please know I'm speaking to myself just as much as I say this. You may believe you had a rough childhood. You may believe you had a good childhood. You may believe you have been bullied. You might have been the bully. But your bully will not stand before God for your sins. Your parents will not answer for your sin. You will. Your teachers, your coworkers, your boss, your friends, your neighbors, the president himself, they will all face their own judgments. What comes out of you, what comes out of your heart, 
That's what you will answer for one day. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this, that if you repent and believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he stands between you and the Father. And he says, no, they, though they be stained with the muck and filth of sin, my blood has covered and cleansed them. Dave Wilkerson says it this way, when we look at Daniel in the Old Testament, we see a great example of what it means to face and understand our sins. In Daniel 9, he prays, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Daniel was in exile. He was alive in a time where Israel was not even living in their own land. And even though he had been given much authority, he'd been elevated above everybody else, he was still a prisoner in a foreign land. And yet he prays. And he understands that God's not listening to the prayers of Israel because they have not dealt with their sin. They refuse to face it or try to understand it. It wasn't a matter of prayer, it was a matter of pride. And it cost them God's favor, and it cost them God's blessing, and it destroyed a whole nation from the inside out. So Daniel prays and he repents on behalf of Israel and his prayers, before it's even completed, the angel Gabriel shows up and immediately Israel is in a right relationship with their God. Why was his prayer answered so quickly? Because he prayed in faith and he understood repentance and he understood God judges sin, but he shows mercy. In the same way, Christ is ready to free us from our sin, from our shame, from the weight of all the guilts we carry, but we have to face and we have to understand that defilement that lives within us. Then he comes to us quickly and he will cure our sin and keep us from being defiled from the inside out. And that's my final point this morning. Christ cures our sin. He was saying to them, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. What what proceeds out of your life not only defines you, it may very well be what defiles you. What fruit does your life produce? What evidence does your life give as to, as to where your priorities are? If someone were examining your life with a, with a microscope and going through every one of your actions, every one of your words, what conclusion would they come to? Someone once told me that they enjoy my Twitter feed. Uh, those of you who don't know, yes, I, I do Twitter. And uh, someone said, looking through my timeline, it's like hanging out with me. He's like, man, you'll, you'll talk about theology one minute, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings the next, and then you're quoting a Bible verse. It's like just hanging out with you. If you don't believe that, I did a whole thing on why Batman is the greatest superhero. Totally irrelevant to today. But it, it's just kind of like what it's like to hang out with me in, in a room. And I'm not saying that to gain Twitter followers, but it's just to prove a point. It proves I'm a further geek, for one thing. But it also says a lot about my life, what, what I think about, what I talk about, where my priorities are. What does your social media say about your life? And I only, say, I only bring up social media for this reason. That's today's photo album, isn't it? That's where we post the things we want people to know. That's where we share the things we want to remember. We even have this thing on Facebook called memories. And you can pull up something stupid you did five years ago and go, ha, 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 look how dumb I was, right? That's, that's the beauty of that. We don't show the blurry bad photos. We don't post about the day where our kid made a mess in the back seat of our car, we lost our cool, we yelled at the dog, and we kicked a trash can. Nobody posts about that. And yet, 
We still compare ourselves to everyone else's Instagram photos. Like that's the, that's the real thing in their life, even though we don't look at their deleted photos album, right? So what image does your life portray? What does the way you talk to your spouse say about your love of Christ? Those of you who have been sitting through this series, you've heard me say again and again, your life imitates your theology. You know what you believe about Jesus Christ will be reflected in how you treat your wife or your husband. D.L. Moody once said, if I wanted to find out where a man, whether a man was a Christian or not, I wouldn't go to his minister. I would go and ask his wife. We need more Christian life at home. If a man does not treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. Jesus, I heard some wife say amen, but husbands, you can say it too. That's all right. Yeah, there we go. I was waiting on you, Dale. Jesus says as much when he tells his disciples, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, if you're undefiled, you're going to act like it. But we can't not be, we cannot be undefiled if we're not connected to Christ. If we're not in Christ and Christ is in us. When a sinful man or a sinful woman gives their heart to God and submits to him and begins to live for him, the Holy Spirit dwells in that person's life and begins to change them from the inside out. Prior to living for Christ, we live according to our flesh, our defiled selves. But once we're in Christ, that change begins. We begin to be cured. And as the defilement came from the inside out, the cleansing comes from the inside out. Paul says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Apostle Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against those things. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Paul paints to, to the Galatian church as to what a believer's life should produce. That's what should be growing out of their life. But the fruit of the flesh, that's the fruit of the mind that's not set on Christ. The fruit of the uncured, unhealed, still defiled man. And Jesus gives us a list in Mark 7. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Paul will give a similar list elsewhere in the New Testament, but I thought it would be prudent to break this down this morning. Evil thoughts, it's actually two words in the Greek. It literally means to fantasize or about, uh, fantasize about or plan wickedness. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. I'll let you draw conclusions as to where English word comes from that. It's any sexual activity involving someone other than your spouse. Thefts is the Greek word klopi, and it's taking someone's possessions against the rightful owner's will. Murder is the Greek word phonos. It's where you deliberately end someone's life. Adultery. You would think that this was covered under the previous word, but it's not. It's violating your marriage vows. That's anything that violates your marriage vows. That goes a little deeper than what was previously mentioned, right? Coveting. That's wanting more than your due. Wickedness, it's simply just a sinful attitude, a sinful disposition. You come to church with a, with a bad attitude, that's 
That's the fruit of the flesh in you, right? Deceit. That's the Greek word dolos. It's contriving to betray someone, planning to to deceive someone. Sensuality. Now, you would think this is something lustful, but not necessarily. It's it's not being able to have any self-control, whether it's an act of violence or an act of lust. Envy. It's the Greek word ophthalmos, poneros. It's two words. Desiring something despite any moral restrictions against owning it. Literally translated the evil eye. Slander. This one's fun. You know there's a good, th- a good kind of gossip? You can talk good about people behind their back. People say, gossip's bad. We're, we're gossiping. We're, so- we're saying good stuff about that person. Not gossip. This is the type of gossip that's sinful. Slander. It comes from the Greek word blasphemia where we get the word blasphemy. And it literally means reviling, disrespecting, or defaming someone else. Then there's pride. Hyperephania. Which is just thinking too highly of yourself. Being arrogant. And then here's the one that is killing the church today. Foolishness. It's the Greek word aphrosyne, which is willfully failing to use your ability to reason. It is willful ignorance. It is refusing to hear instruction, refusing to hear sound teaching. It's not stupidity. It's not dumbness. It's not acting silly. It's refusing to be teachable. 13 things Jesus lists. Now, I don't want anyone to raise their hands, okay? Nobody raise your hand. But how many of you might think, uh, at least one or two of those applies to me. And not, I'm not, I don't mean me, okay? I've already went through this. <laughs> How many of these apply to me as an individual? Ask yourself that. I find a few pop up within my life. I'll be willing to, to say that. Pastors are people too. And I don't know a single pastor. I've never met a single pastor who didn't struggle with pride. Who didn't, at one point in their life, take the steps up to a pulpit and say, man, I could be doing this at a conference. I should be preaching to the whole nation. I don't know a single pastor who hasn't coveted someone else's congregation at one point or another and thought, man, they've got it easy. They've got it better. The list goes on. Without even praying about it, off the top of your head, I guarantee you, you could think of a couple of things off that, that list. If not, ask your spouse because they could help you find some things. I didn't hear anybody say amen to that. Ladies, you've learned your lesson, I guess, but that's okay. You might be sitting there and you might say, well, I'm not a murderer. But have you ever wanted something so bad and you couldn't have it? Or someone? You just made the list. Christ said, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So if that's what defiles us, then we have to ask, what's what's the cure? If even Christians have this defilement within them, how can we be clean? Who or what could possibly absolve us of these 13 paths to destruction? Well, the Apostle Paul lays it out beautifully in Romans 7 and 8. And I would challenge you, take your Bible and write out Romans 7 and 8. Just sit down at your kitchen table this afternoon and do this. Don't put the verse numbers in. Don't put the chapter numbers in. And read it as if he's writing to you. Paul says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my, hand, with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. 
And we like to stop right there. Oh, that's, that's the end of the chapter, right? We're done with that now. No, 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 no. Paul continues on. We, we like to stop there because we like this little thing. Well, Paul was a sinner too, so I, can, I don't have to worry about my sin. I can keep on sinning. I can keep on being the way that I am. But that's not what Paul, Paul goes on. That's the tricky thing about those chapter numbers put in your Bible about 500 years ago. He goes on in Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's that pesky word if again if you are in christ you're not going to want to continue in sin you're not going to want to yield to sin you're not going to want to struggle with sin you're going to want to conquer that sin that's the key to the cure that little word if if you are in christ if you are in christ you are covered under the cross and though we may still have sin at times we are the longer we are in christ the more we will become like Christ. The mature believer in Jesus Christ will sin less, but they will feel the weight of their sins all the heavier. He is the cure. His shed blood on the cross is what cures us. It is what cleanses us. And it is because of the cross where my sins and your sins, our sins were placed upon him that we are able to be free from that which defiles us. Christ alone is the cure. His resurrection from the dead gives us victory over death, but it is in his death we are given victory over sin. It is because of that truth Paul would wrap up that entire stream of thought in Romans 7 and 8 with these words, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is because of the cross of Christ, sin has lost the ability to taint us, to defile us from the inside out. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's powerful. And this is the message we have to share with the world around us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. We have to give people the gospel. And when I say that, I don't mean just being nice, being kind to people around you and hoping we one day get to have that conversation. All of us, not just the pastor, all of us must preach and teach the gospel to the people you love or one day the people you love, the people around you are going to, they're going to die and they're going to go to hell and they're going to go thinking you were a good person and they were a good person too. We must boldly proclaim the cure for sin and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to move to close, but spiritually, 
We cannot heal ourselves or anyone else. You cannot love someone enough to take away their natural ability, their built-in capability to sin. You can help people learn restraint, but that does not change who they are in their core. You can take a a pig out of the, the pen and clean them up real nice with soap and shampoo and make them look like Wilbur from Charlotte's Web at the end. But you know what? As soon as that pig sees some mud, he's going right back to it. And that's the same as when we try to clean and cleanse, uh, cleanse someone who doesn't let Christ cleanse them from the inside out. It's their nature. People try to rationalize their sin in a lot of ways, but the most common one we hear a lot these days is, I was born this way. Oh, absolutely you were. Absolutely you were born into sin. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, you must be born again. We have to face the ugly truth about our nature. Seek to understand it. And once we do, we will realize the only cure for our defiled selves is to let Christ in and let his spirit grow the good fruit out of us. There is no sin, and I want you to hear me on this, there is no sin so great that God cannot forgive it through the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter what the people around you think today. If you're here and you're, or if you're watching online, I want you to grab someone close to you and take that step together and say, I am ready to give my life to him. I want the cleansing of Christ in my heart. I need that. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I am a Christian, but I'm really struggling. I really am finding it, Pastor, and I need help. I need some a brother or a sister to come alongside me and pray with me and pray for me. Hey, that's what we have a prayer team here for. We'd be happy to pray with you for that. But this time I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to dismiss in prayer. And if that's you, find a place to pray. If you're ready to leave and you want to, or you want to fellowship out in the, the foyer, that's, that's okay too. We have some tables, uh, nice new tables and a whole area for fellowship down there. Make use of them. But have some respect for those who seek to pray in the sanctuary this morning. Father God, we come before you right now. And if there are those who know it's time to live for Christ, time to give it over and, and submit to you, now is as good a time as any. Holy Spirit, I pray you strengthen them. Empower them to take that step forward in their life. Father, for the Christian, for those who are struggling, you know their struggle, you know their torment. And Father, I pray for a reprieve. I pray for a relief. Holy Spirit, speak to their very core. Encourage them with your word. And for the Christian who says, I'm doing okay, then go make disciples. Lord, I pray that we are bold in our witness for you. I pray we're no longer satisfied with being the only Christian in the room, but we start to see ourselves as the only evangelist bringing people to Christ in the room. Lord, may we go forward today living for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.